Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Ebersole, and I am delighted to be joined today by the poet Mary Rufel, whose latest book of poems is Trances of the Blast, published by Wave Books. Mary Rufel's poetry sneaks up on you as if you're standing at night on Main Street, admiring a coat in the storefront. And then suddenly something grabs your head, yanks it back, and exposes your throat to the moon and stars. And as if years pass, she releases you. And after you brush yourself off, you're never the same again as you walk away. Mary Rufel, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Um, before we get into Trances of the Blast, I was wondering if we could rewind quite a bit and tell us a little about where you grew up and uh, what your childhood was like. Well, I had the misfortune of being born into a military family, mm-hmm. which means that we didn't, I call it a misfortune for a number of re- reasons. Uh, primary among them is the fact we had no over. We had no control over where we lived or how often we moved. And I can't say I'm really from anywhere because I moved either every one year, two years, or three years would be the longest time we stayed in one place from the time I was born until I was 18. Um, But then I settled more or less in the state of Vermont, and I have lived here on and off for 40 years and certainly do not have enough time left on earth to, I could never uh, live anywhere else for as long as I've lived here, even if I were to permanently move tomorrow. (laughs) This is absolutely true. Can you? Well, you asked about the past, and I brought you up to the present. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I was once, this little anecdote will sum it up, I was taking a linguistics course in college, and the linguistics professor, who was amazing, on the first day had everyone, he went around the room, and I think you only had to say your name. Maybe you had to speak one complete English sentence, and he could listen to you, and he could tell you where you were from. And he was uncannily accurate. And when he came to me, he asked me to repeat the sentence. Oh, my God. And I had to repeat it. And he said, he looked at me and said, you are not from any one particular place. I hear in your voice the influences of all the major regions in the country. 
Oh my! Yeah, God. <laughs> he he nailed it. Yeah, he totally did. And what was the last? Can you remember uh, when your did your father eventually retire? I guess um, were you already eventually he did retire and eventually he died. And where did he yeah. uh, spend his last days? Florida. Florida, really? Did you ever live Pensacola, there? Pensacola, Florida. Pardon me. Did you ever live there? No, I never lived there. I was long gone from home by the time they settled, retired in Florida. But obviously, I I visited them. Yes. And when you were for, talking about yeah. uh, the linguistics class, sorry to interrupt, uh, what college were you attending? I went to Bennington College. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you were in Vermont, huh? Yeah. Um, and did you follow, uh, and we'll get to the point where poetry really kind of took hold of you, but did, well, let me ask you when when did poetry and Ernest uh, kind of find you and latch onto you and you started writing poetry? Well, I know when poetry found me, but I don't know, I cannot pinpoint when it found me in earnest. To hmm. quote, quote that phrase you used, mm-hmm. I don't even know most days if it has yet found me in earnest, but it found me at a very young age. I would say poetry found me at the age of seven. Is that a weird way to put it, it finding you? Is that some sort of like nebulous way to put it? (laughs) No, it's much more accurate than uh, me finding it. it. It found me, it found a way into my life and via two things, uh, Anthologies of Poems for Children, mm-hmm. which I fell in love with and devoured and had to own and keep in my room and read there as a lonely child. And it found me via the proverbial elementary school assignment. <laughs> you know, today, boys and girls, everyone's going to write a poem, mm-hmm. which was probably more prevalent then than now. Mm-hmm. But um, being asked to write it in school and and reading it, it, it found me. It didn't uh, find me in... It found me in a very different way when I was in junior high and could read... <laughs> full-fledged poems in the English language intended for adults. Right. I mean, that that changes everything. I actually can, I can remember, I think I wrote about this in in one of my essays, but I can't remember, so I'll tell you anyway. Uh My, I was in junior high. My sister was in college. She came home for the summer. I'd had a knee operation. My leg was in a cast, so I couldn't go outside and play the way I normally would. She was in the basement ironing, and she had a book from an English class, and it was the British Romantics. Hmm. Now, either she gave it to me to read or she read a poem from it. That I do not remember. All I can remember is being in the basement, her at an ironing board, my leg in a cast, and 
my life being changed forever be- when I, I think I was reading Shelley. <laughs> it's such a wonderful image to picture you wounded, essentially, and poetry yeah. like, now I got her, she can't even escape me. Um, yeah, wounds on wounds on wounds. <laughs> They're like totally piled it was on. Shelley, it was it was Ozymandias, I think. Yeah, if that's how you pronounce the title of that great poem, which has to this day has such a special place in my heart and mind. Yeah, and it's funny because when I think about you, the way you come across the page is very very solitary and I was surprised to I don't know anything about your biography so I was surprised to hear about your sister suddenly did you have any other siblings or was she your only sibling no there were three children uh, your typical American nuclear family um, I have a brother as well as a sister they're both older mm-hmm. and so yeah being the youngest was that did that distinguish your childhood in any way I mean it's kind of a cliche to Think about like I oh, think you it does. I, I think people have devoted their lives to studying this, you know, placement of the child, birth yeah. order, and all of that. The only child, the youngest, the oldest, the middle. Um, of course it did. Of course it did. There are fewer photographs of the youngest child because and there are no there were no baby books or photographs because by the time the youngest one came along nobody cared anymore. Um, but you're also being the youngest, you're surrounded by um twice as many people. Uh, you know, when you're the firstborn there there's just you and your parents. I never thought of it that way. I am the youngest person uh in my family as well as the youngest and I also remember having to like look up a lot and, and like, cause everyone was so much taller and, mm-hmm. and it was almost like, uh, these disembodied faces constantly floating around me. It was really weird. And, uh, it reminds me, I was thinking, uh, there was some birth order book or something that was talking about the family. And it was interesting. There's always kind of the, the sibling that's the, or somebody in the family that's like the savior. And then there's somebody who is always, the scapegoat who gets blamed for everything, and then there's always the lost child. And I'm wondering if sometimes the the youngest child is, and winds up being the lost one. Like everyone's exhausted by the time they get to the youngest. It's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And the youngest is uh, often creative. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking recently to someone who is the the fifth child of six children and they were bemoaning this fact because it was a number nobody cared about to be the fifth of six children and I thought about it and my heart went out to this person because it what what utter uh unluck is that (laughs) I know every family you can't escape the strangeness and dysfunction of them it's really incredible uh, let me so, ask you, uh, after you, uh, did you follow the traditional trajectory that seems common for young poets now and went through an, well, not even young poets, but uh, through an MFA no. program for poetry? No, no, I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, I came of age at a time where there were, first of all, only a handful of MFA programs and it was not considered, well, in my mind, de rigueur or necessary to to follow that route. So um, 
sometimes, um, sometimes I deeply regret it. Hmm. And other, other times I think it's the best thing I ever did, depending on what day you talk to me. But after college, I, um, Oh, this is a long, boring story, but basically I was writing fiction, well, what I thought was fiction or uh-huh. prose, and I did, in fact, um, I attended, I got a, an MA at Holland's College in yeah. Virginia, which is now Holland University and has an MFA program, but mm-hmm. in those days, they simply had an, a, a brief MA program, and all of the my peers, uh, the group, incoming group, that year afterwards, they just went on to MFA programs. Interesting. It yeah. was, and I remember thinking, "You're insane. <laughs> you're you're a writer, and aren't shouldn't you just go write? Aren't you tired of school?" Right. Um, and it was inco- it was incomprehensible to me at that time. It no longer is incomprehensible to me. But at that time, I was very stubborn, and um, or maybe I was just thinking out of the box. I don't know, but I I never did, and yeah. I I made this switch that year. I think I had a scholarship or a fellowship in fiction, but I never wrote any fiction. I wrote poetry, which I had always written as soon as I was there. Anyway, long story short, I sent I I sent a quote unquote story to a magazine and I got a letter back and the letter said this was the summer after college uh-huh. before I, I did the MA year and the letter said um, dear Miss Ruffle, we regret to inform you we do not publish poetry. <laughs> so I, it was very interesting. I took the the same piece without any changes and sent it to a poetry magazine, and it was accepted. So that was kind of a pivotal uh, awakening. It really was because I said, "Oh, I get it. Okay, <laughs> all right, you know." And, you know, these were pieces with right flush margins. Right. And then over the years, I had many of these pieces. And if you look at my first, I don't know how many books, there's always a very strange, odd, misplaced piece of quote-unquote prose right. stuck in there. And I think up up through Cold Meridian, and then I... It, Everything dawns very slowly on me, and then I I realize, hey, I should pull all these pieces and not publish them in books of poems and publish them as a volume unto themselves, and that ended up to be my book, the most of it. Right, right. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about writing writing prose compared to poetry. It's kind of a cliche question, but do you... Do you sense, because I, I write both and I sense uh, it, there does seem to be a different energy going on. Uh, uh, I find that I get angrier when I'm writing prose, like I'll have to walk away from it that I don't sense in poetry. Do you find that you react to your writing differently when it's prose or poetry? Yes, you're 
you're absolutely right. And I've never thought about it, but I have those same feelings. When I'm writing a poem, I am, look, for better or for worse, I'm in my own little world and I'm very, very happy to be there. And it makes absolutely no difference to me if later on someone wants to join me there or not. Right. I really could care less. I mean, I'm happy if they want to, but I'm not unhappy if they don't. Mm -hmm. I understand. With prose, I have much more of a sense of audience. Yeah. I don't know why, but I do. I have much more sense of a purpose that is not only interior, and I get frustrated. I feel like more of a failure <laughs> and have to walk away. Yeah. I totally yeah, am true. sympathetic to that. Uh, I was just working on a paragraph. I remember just the other day from like 8.30 or 9 a.m. and I worked on it and my eyes were, my eyes always feel like I'm starved. They're starving when I write prose. And and then I I ended that entire, it was just like a paragraph trying to untangle a thought. And uh, by 12 o'clock, I just gave up and ditched the whole thing. And it was so depressing. Uh, but with poetry, it seems to be a more, I don't know, the exchange between what's the interior and then the articulation seems much more forgiving and, and playful. And the prose just brings a, I don't know, I think, like you said, frustration and anger. And uh, But I still, I don't know why, I guess I still enjoy that in some weird way. Um, when, I have, when I have to write a poem, when I'm moved to write a poem, the, meaning the pressure from within, I will stop whatever I am doing. Right. I, I will... I will not do absolutely necessary things that must be done. In terms of triaging activities, when a poem comes, it's instantly in first place. Do you? F- I know it's, always, it's like impossible to manage your time, right? It is. But prose, for instance, right now, ever since uh, last night, I want to write a, a little prose piece. I know exactly in my mind, more or less what it's going to be, quote, mm-hmm. unquote, about. And I will put this off. <laughs> I have, it scares me. Yeah. It scares me. So I will put it off and put, I will eventually write it, but not today. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. I haven't followed that, but I do approach them differently, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder if anybody has an inner propulsion to write an essay and needs to drop everything. I don't. I'm not sure. Oh, me- I'm sure. No, no, I'm sure. And that's and that's a sign to them that that is their calling. I think I'm that's sure right. I know. Do you ever think? Uh, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think writers are given this act of writing and their love for writing and their need to write as like probably the only gift this universe has thrown at them. And how, like, it takes a while sometimes to recognize or uh, to be humble enough to accept that gift. Have you ever found that in the beginning when you started writing? Somehow you resisted it? Well, I think the real gift is being alive. Yeah. And I think that that writing is an acknowledgement of that other gift. 
and it very yeah. often takes a boy or girl a long, long time to acknowledge the first primary gift of life itself. I think that is so true. That is amazing that you said that. And I think, too, that your work is pretty much uh, often... And you're not, and you're not kind of shy about this. It's just an articulation of that total, the totality of the bewilderment of just being alive. It's just like uh, such a preposterous state of affairs uh, that that you're that you get to wake up every day and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm Mary. Hi, you know, like I'm, I'm going to be Mary Roof all day again today. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty incredible. Tell me about. Uh, I usually don't. John, I don't put it exactly like that when I wake up. You but, don't? <laughs> uh, n n I don't call myself by my own name. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> it's a delightful image. <laughs> <laughs> like you wake up and you're like, oh, my gosh, here I am. I'm Mary. I got to do this all over again today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let me ask you. Another quick. day, another day. Uh, definitely. How did your relationship Wish with uh, Wave Books develop? Um, they're a pretty extraordinary uh, press. I was wondering how your relationship started with them. My relationship with them started through my editor, Joshua Beckman, who... I was in, I was giving a reading in New York and I was introduced Joshua was there and we were introduced and it was the first time I had sort of come out of the closet as an erasure artist. I had been making these books for many years but I had never read aloud from one at a reading. Oh wow. And I was giving a regular poetry reading and I read aloud from an erasure book mm -hmm. and Joshua was in the audience and was very much interested in it and asked to see the book and very shortly thereafter he was hired by Wave to become one of their editors and he contacted me about the possibility of them bringing out an erasure book. That's how it started. And in fact, A Little White Shadow, um, the only erasure book that's been published, was it, that was my first publication with with Wave. Were you really excited and when somebody showed interest in that? I cannot even put into words uh, my feelings of uh, my feeling, it, it was un, un, unspeakable um, to watch Joshua read that little book, and I could tell from his face that he got it and yeah. was into it. And I had been very, very shy about these these things, which were piling up all over my apartment. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I, it was, it was uh, my my, um, my meeting Joshua, and later joining Wave, uh, well, having them bring the erasure out, and then um, much later, having them become my sole publisher, I consider one of um, the luckiest things that have ever happened to me in my life. Oh, that is so sweet. Yeah, they are uh, they're really great. And uh, let me ask you about those erasures, because it's such a different engagement in a way with language that it's very tactile, and you're mixing your labor with the 
I don't know, it sounds cliche, but like the materiality of the language, uh, what kind of, what kind of, I guess if we see writing off like poetry or writing it or composing it as like, you know, moments of self forgetting. And I think stuff like craft and just making things and building things, uh, is also an act of self forgetting, which to me at least is a tremendous respite from the usual anxieties of consciousness. Did you find that? putting those erasures together were particularly like uh, psychologically like healthy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I liked what you just said about um, losing consciousness of the ordinary anxieties. When I work on an erasure, no, I'm, I'm making art. I'm in another world and this world, um, um, I have all the all the same feelings and sensations and that one does when when is one is writing a poem or I'm sure it's the same for any artist whatever he or she is is making or putting together. Mhm. And uh oh, yeah. to get to uh to get to your latest book Trances of the Blast is there anything uh you know, intrinsically different, you think, about what you're up to in this book as opposed to your other books. I was reading recently about, uh, uh, been thinking about this, how a poet will often by their second or third book kind of find their kind of, uh, their, their common way of expression and, uh, that, that they become who they really were, uh, supposed to become. Is there something, uh, anything different in particular about Trances of the Blast or, do you see it as a, a kind of a seamless continuation of your prior work? I don't think I can answer that question mm-hmm. because if my if my work changes over the years, I myself am not aware of it, although I can become aware of it when others point it out. Yeah. I'm not the sort of poet that I don't have, you know, projects for the next book. I I very much admire a great many poets who do, but I don't. I'm just not, I don't work like that. I don't set, uh, I, I, um, I I don't know. What do you think? Do you think this is a departure or a change? I, I, I'm unaware of it. No, I think, there is a consistency, a pretty solid consistency to your work from book to book. But what I think what you're saying is, and I find this, I think it's really like, it's really encouraging, I think, is that you're kind of, there's no sense of like codependency on the exterior world when you're writing your work. It's that, and maybe it takes a tremendous confidence or at least a strong sense of who you are to just kind of untether yourself and trust whatever, you know, whatever kind of voice or tone or word choice that occurs to you. And I think a lot of young poets in particular are kind of like, uh, they're like multi-vocal in many ways. They, from poem to poem, they present sort of a different energy. And I think while your book, certainly presents a multitude of energies that I always feel the intimate connection that I'm speaking and listening to and interacting with, with, uh, with the same sort of, uh, sort of locus of, of, uh, 
production or creativity. So I would say, I would say that I, you're recognizable from book to book, which I think I, is. I hear you, but that may have something to do with, I think a life becomes decompartmentalized as time passes. So when you're very young, I know this was true of when I was young, you have all these different spheres that you keep moving from one to the other. Yeah. You have your work life, your job. Then you have your life as an artist, your creative work. And then you have your your family or your your part or your partnership or your relationship to uh the various close ones in your life. And then you have uh, your community life or your home life, where you live, your apartment, your apartment bu- building, your neighbors, your roof break, whatever it is, your, you have, your, and then you have your family, your birth family. And these are very, that's a lot of spheres orbiting around, um, and you, and you move from one to the other. But if you're lucky as, as, as time passes, well, I can't, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself. I realized over time, without being too conscious of it at the time, I realized later my whole life was one of decompartment. I can't pronounce it anymore. I simply, I had very few compartments in my life right now. I think I I just you know, and the word my world is my world, and it's it's one sphere, and there may be spheres within it, but they're all part of this one sphere, which is my life as an artist. I think my life. That, you know, first of all, eventually your birth family dies. I yeah. mean, your parents die. Yeah. And everything changes. There's not that. And then, once you reach a certain age, there are no more authority figures. That's a huge, huge change. No more authority figures. Um, and and you begin to concentrate on the one thing that makes you happy. Oh, you know, it's paint what you want and die happy. That's a Henry Miller title. I love right. it. Paint what you want and die happy. And and as artists, we should try, insofar as possible, to enact that in in our lives. And as we come closer and closer to it, I think we might be less multi-vocal, as you say. Yeah, I think that's really amazing and wise what you just said. And it used to, I used to, a long time ago, I talked to a poet who was very tentative about whether he was wanted to start a family one day, blah, blah, blah. And I always assumed it was just a matter of time management issues, like he would have to devote his time to elsewhere. But I think what you're saying is 10 times more profound in that in each, each compartment of our lives resides this kind of a fear. And it's just a fear of, whether losing or being misunderstood or whatever it is that, and I think it's right. I think it is fear among other things. And if one has that kind of stacked boxes on one's shoulders all the time to sit down and trust yourself as a creative artist 
is going to maybe be there's going to be a lot of pressure on you in those moments of creation and and what comes out it ultimately might be like you said maybe expressions of all those compartments of fear and uh that's really incredible i'm so glad you said that because that is helpful to me and hopefully other people um i was hoping mary we could go ahead and crack open uh trances of the blast and read a few poems out of it how do you feel about that oh that'd be lovely yeah let's do that all right so i was hoping we could get to and the book is just lovely what do you think of this very spartan uh design of the book uh wave has put out quite a lot of books now with this very you know it's not visually busy look they want i think the idea behind that is they want a book to be easily recognizable as a wave book Mm -hmm. um the way the old black sparrow books were all recognizable as black sparrow books as one example so um the the books, the books are very handsome, and uh, they—they're all black and white, and that's a conscious decision on their part. Yeah, they—they really they, they give a lot of thought to production. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really beautifully done. Um, I think the first poem I was hoping you could read is on page eleven. Uh, uh, okay. Provenance. Proven- yeah. Okay. Provenance. In the fifth grade, I made a horse of paper mache and painted it white and named it Aurora. We were all going to the hospital, each one was his little animal, to give to the girl who was lying on her deathbed there, whose name I can't recall. A classmate with freckles, perhaps, or such small feet, her footsteps never mattered much. I did not want to give her anything. It seemed unfair she got to ride Aurora, whom I made with my own two hands and took aside at birth and said, go, while I had to walk, perhaps for a very long time. I thought perhaps the animals would all come back together and on one day, but they never did. And so I've had to deal with wild and tractable people all my days and have been led astray in a world of shattered moonlight and beasts and trees where no one ever even curtsies anymore or has an understudy. So I have gone up to the little room in my face. I am making something out of a jar of freckles and a jar of glue. I hated childhood. I hate adulthood. And I love being alive. Mary, thank you so much. Uh, you know what really struck me about this poem is your, con- I mean, a lot of things, did, but your constant use of the word perhaps in the beginning, <laughs> that there was this non-committal kind of qualifier of perhaps, 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 and the attitude of the speaker towards this this little girl on her deathbed is just mesmerizing. <laughs> that um, It reminds me of... Uh, it just reminded me of this. I heard an interview with, uh, you know, the essay writer David Sedaris, and he wrote, apparently wrote some essay where he visited Anne Frank's house, and he ends the essay on actually gazing out her window and admiring the apartment across the street and how he would want to rent it, and how it just like totally undercut the historical importance of Anne Frank. And in a way, I get the sense with this speaker that she is kind of it sounds like made to go to this person in a hospital bed 
and right there, it's just kind of like a little resentment, a little resentment. And now you're going to take something I made with my hands that I developed a relationship with. And then the poem takes this dramatic turn and you say, and so I've had to deal with wild and tractable people all my days. And you just go from there and it's just amazing. And then to end, I hated childhood. I hate adulthood. And I love being alive. Is there anything you want to say about this poem? Well, it, it all really happened. It was a vague memory that sort of came back to me at some point in later life. But I was in the fifth grade. And we did, we made these animals with paper mache. The entire class went to the hospital to visit a classmate who was dying there of cancer. Oh, my God. And we gave, we brought her the animals we'd made. And she had them all around her bed in her hospital room. And we had to give them away. And... It was one of the first art objects I I ever made, and yeah. I was rather attached attached to the horse. Yeah. We had to we we had to give it to the girl, and then I really did think this is a child's thought. You yeah. know, well, she'll she'll die, and I'll, we'll get the animals back. They'll give them back to us. Right. But she did die, but we never got the animals back. Oh, my God. And I was angry. And, you know, I was a child. And the title provenance, of course, means that the word uh, is most often used in the art world to trace the ownership of an art object. Exactly. Um, so I don't know, but out, out of the blue, this this out of the blue, out of nowhere, this memory came back came back to me. I had forgotten it yeah. for a very long time. And I was very mad after the poem was published because I remembered later that the horse's name was not Aurora. It was Arabella. Isn't that funny? But when I wrote it, I was sure I had remembered the correct name, Aurora. Uh-huh. And, and, later, and then out of the blue... Walking across the floor one day, I stopped in in my tracks and said, it was Arabella. <laughs> oh, no. I just, you know. You, like, raised your fist up at the ceiling. <laughs> Arabella. But, you know, if you read the poem, of course, Arabella would sound horrible in it. I could never use Arabella. I couldn't I couldn't replace Aurora with Ara- Arabella because it would destroy the sound of the opening. I'd have to completely rewrite the first stanza that you make Arabella work. Yeah, Aurora just abducts the mouth when it shapes those sounds. It's incredible. Um, Aurora was uh, Dawn, and it was the birth name of Cinderella in a lot of the um, in, a, in a lot of the versions of, of that folk tale or fairy tale. Yeah, when you write... Only a girl would know that. I'm sorry. We should get <laughs> No, that's quite all right. We have a lot of girl listeners. Uh, when when you write I Hated Childhood, that really, I don't know if you're being a little, you know, you know, a little half sincere there, but it made me think, um, it made me think whenever I see, I know, I learned how I sort of felt about childhood whenever I see children involved in a collectively staged activity. Um whether it's like a birthday party or at a school, they're asked to sing a song together that one time I turned to a friend and I told him, 
I told him in, in so many ways, like, isn't this tragic? And he, he like turned to me and looked at me like I was a monster. And, and it really kind of got me thinking about childhood and childhood and children, the spirit of children populate and play around your poems often. I was wondering, do you have a particular take on childhood? I know the poem says you hated it, but can you speak to that at all? Well, it's absolutely true. I hated childhood. That is a true statement, but an equally true statement is I loved childhood. First of all, the, the state of consciousness of a child mm-hmm. is a wondrous, wondrous thing and makes them incredibly resilient to whatever is going on around them. I mean, children who live in war-torn countries right. and who... Uh, I'm just using using that as an example, um, can still, you know, find uh, a broken stick in the rubble, and even though they're starving, they, they'll play with it, you know. Precisely. I mean, that, and there's that side of childhood, and in that sense, all childhoods are happy, insofar as the basic consciousness of of a child is geared towards being in the moment. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, the, uh, there's the idea of the myth of a happy childhood. Children are terribly cruel to one another. Parents can be terribly cruel to children. And many children are misunderstood and lonely. And I had a very lonely, misunderstood childhood. Right. And, and, I have some pretty devastating childhood memories, and I have some wonderful childhood memories that are full of life and joy and beauty and love. It's no different than adulthood. <laughs> yeah, no, I always sense in your work, and I think I, when I introduced you, I, I had this sense of, I always sense that your poems are, uh, there's an amicable, uh, quality to them that I always feel like is definitely veiling, I think, uh, it seems to me a particular like, uh, traumas of childhood for some reason. And, and it was interesting that you said that you have some devastating and also good memories from childhood, but some devastating ones oh. as well. And those, yeah. and those that occur in childhood are, um, you know, I I, listen, I heard an interview with uh, the writer Barry Lopez, and he had a very traumatic experience uh, as a child, and he was talking about it, and he wrote about it, I think, and it, he felt like had, something had been plucked from him that could never be replaced, and uh, and that I think many writers write into that place, whatever was taken. It's very fascinating. Um, I was hoping we could uh, move on to another uh, another poem, and this one. Uh, is titled Fireworks on page 16. Certainly. And before I read that, though, I want to respond to what you just said. Of course. Um, I'm very fond of saying many, not all, many, many people who are writers were very lonely children who found their their first true comrades in books. Indeed. Gosh, isn't that so, so you, true? You find in a book someone who you sense instantly is a friend 
someone who's curious and someone who seems to be overwhelmed by life, someone who's not afraid to print the words, I'm lonely, um, someone who is full of joy over the simplest. You know, we find in novels and poems as children, as children, but especially as adolescents and young adults, we find comrades and we find eventually our family. Isn't that remarkably true? That is exactly my experience. Um, and I'm glad you, by speaking to it, you will yeah. definitely honor it. Um, whenever you're so, uh, I'm going to read fireworks now. I, mean, I, I would love if you did that. Fireworks. The world was designed and built to overwhelm and astonish, which makes it hard to like. Like an American is someone who thinks Jen Vermeer is from Vermont and a woman. I am a woman from Vermont. Little less surprising than the copiousness of transpiration, which is so inconsequential, I cannot live without it. Later, I will look for a nail paring on the floor. As if a maid were coming tomorrow, one always has to pick up first. Right now, I am writing on the back of a bank statement. My happiness is marred only by my failure to attain it. Otherwise, it would astonish and overwhelm. Quick, children, put on your robes. We must all go downstairs to see something. On this same night was Balthazar murdered by his servants. What the Russian soldier, quoting Hein, scratched on the wall in the room where the whole royal family was shot. Shot to fleshy pieces with many aims, at least 20 of which left explosive stars in the wallpaper. Their greed and power astonished all. Their death overwhelms us. Mary, thanks for that. That was that is such a powerful poem. I'm just... Speaking of being overwhelmed and astonished, uh, I was continually... You can thank my, my editor for this poem being in the book because uh, uh, just when I was reading it, I recalled I I had put that in the reject pile. That Did was you? very in the reject pile, and uh, he found it, and yeah. It's actually one of my yeah. favorite poems in the entire book. Oh, I, I'll, yeah, I'll pass that on to him and laugh. Because <laughs> Please do. Because one. That was, uh, no, that was to, when I heard, you know, someone wanted to put that in the book. I said, you have to be out of your mind. But <laughs> well, it, the, it takes all minds. The ending does have a, a a pretty surprising burst of violence at the end that <laughs> I didn't see coming whatsoever and I don't see often in your work. Um but I do want to kind of back up a little bit and look at the the repetitions of overwhelm and astonish. The world was designed and built to overwhelm and astonish, which makes it hard to like. And that, to me, is so big-hearted and a generous thing to say to your reader and a reader of poetry, because I think it's uh, you nail on on something so so utterly true there. And then further down in the poem. You say, my happiness is marred only by my failure to attain it. And then we see those two words emerge again. Otherwise, it would astonish and overwhelm. And the, the idea of astonishment and being overwhelmed kind of worked their way through this poem. And I kind of wrestled with that. Um, you often bring up the word happiness in your poems. And in here, I kind of read it that 
one uh for one to be happy you must somehow like the unlikable which the world is and then in the end of the poem you say their greed and power astonished all their death overwhelms us and i thought you kept just i, I imagine it like I turning a safe lock over and over with those two words I think, I mean, at the end, obviously, I'm, I'm referring to uh, the last royal Russian family, uh, right. uh, Nicholas and Alexandra, and their their famous children who who were so brutally murdered. And I use that as an example of how hard it is to think about anything from just one side or view. Or if you are, you're making a terrible mistake because, you know, I mean, in, in fact, you know, half the people in Russia were, were, were peasants. Right. And didn't have enough to eat and the, the greed of uh, some of those monarchies was, uh, un, un, it was un, unspeakably horrific. Yeah. But at the same time, they were human beings and they were a family unit and they loved each other and they were like any other family and the, the details of, of their, of their death of, of I, I was, when I was much younger, became obsessed with Russian history and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the details of the last months of their life are equally horrific. It's, you know, they're inhumane and they're treated inhumanely. Who's innocent? Who's guilty? Mm-hmm. It, it is overwhelming. It's, uh, I'm not sure I answered your question. No, no, uh, that's fine. And but, I wanted to think about in your, and I was hoping for you to speak to this because it's something that I, I often think about that in our country in particular, the, the seeking of personal happiness is almost nearly pathologized or a fetish in many ways that that is the primary purpose of our of our time on earth and i don't know if that's due to the fact that we that many and most have abandoned any concept of eternity or or a life after the one on earth that the stakes are so high on this one that one can only seek happiness here where maybe perhaps in in pre-modern societies where the idea of suffering, which reminded one of death, was kind of, you know, a link in some, in short, it had some sort of meaningful divine purpose. And and I notice happiness comes up a lot in your, in your poem. Well, yeah, there's no such thing as unadulterated happiness. I mean, it doesn't exist. Happiness Happiness is not a goal that you reach and sustain. Only young people are foolish enough to believe that. <laughs> There's still hope in it. Happiness is... Like there's no finish um, line to it. Great many different things. You know, one of the things that is, is um, that being alive is enough. You know, right. that that's, that's the, you know, can just acceptance. Um, but it it also is... It comes, many people write about this, it comes in flashes, and you recognize that it doesn't last, but it's uh, a, a momentary light in the dark, and it's just a little spark. And it's like fireflies. 
Indeed. And um, sometimes there are a lot of fireflies in the field, and sometimes there's only one or two, and sometimes you have to wait for hours or days or months to see another one. I mean, you know, I mean, happiness, I don't know how to talk about happiness, really. I know Wittgenstein said... He didn't know why we were put on earth, but he was pretty sure it had absolutely nothing to do with happiness. <laughs> and I tend, I tend to uh, agree with him. Yeah. Um, I think happiness to an American means a, something very different than it, than it means to someone in another part of the world. Oh, no, wait, I can't say that. But anyway, <laughs> no... No less imminent in authority than the Dalai Lama himself has also said, and this is quoting him, there's a happiness is the purpose of earth. There's nothing wrong with searching for happiness. Yeah. You know, so you put the Dalai Lama and Wittgenstein in a room and have them have a conversation. That is a conversation I would like to over here. I would definitely sit in on that conversation as well. Yeah. Um, to yeah. move forward, let's take a look at your poem, Fall Leaf Studies. And are your fall leaves in Vermont still intact? I was just in Massachusetts, uh, not too far from you. And the, and that was about three weeks ago. And the leaves were literally just blowing up beautifully. Are they still attached to the trees? Oh, they're half gone, half yeah. up, half down. Some days it just rains leaves. So, uh, fall leaf studies. Fall leaf studies. Wake up. I count my money. Then I have lunch. After lunch, I go to the window. The leaves are no longer green. When the leaves fall at the end of summer, who knows if there are enough to cover the ground? Do they themselves ever actually really know? They come down slowly and with many conjectures. After all that yak and in that bronze state, they pause. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wanted to ask you about you've lived in Vermont so long. Have you, um, and I know you've lived in many places, that it seems that the more... And I, I don't know anything about where you live, but is it rural and and pretty naturalistic? And do you find that's pretty consistent with uh, kind of your disposition and what's good for you? Have you ever lived in like New York City or an urban area? How did you discover Vermont was for you? I was simply tired of traveling around after my childhood. So um, I went to college in Vermont and I just wanted to dig my heels in and not move. Um, again, I might have done things differently, had a different head been on my shoulders. Um, I've never lived in an American city larger, but I've spent, you know, I've taught in cities. Right. Um, I've never lived in a, a city the size of New York or L.A. Um, I used to live for many many years out in the extreme country where you you could make a statement you have no neighbors because you couldn't see them. Yeah. But those days are over and actually where I, I live now is smack in the center of uh, a very, you know, depressed New England, small depressed New England town 
Um, I live in what's considered a, a bad neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I I'm very fond of it because um, the the people that I ob- observe here are that they're endlessly fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I did realize the other day that more and more and more the uh, neighborhood that I live in is cropping up in my poems. There are two poems in it, two or three in this new book. I'm trying to think of their titles. Uh, one is The Afternoon According to St. Matthew, and one is What Went Ye Out Into May. Yes. To see. And they, they, they both contain in them seen or heard things from the neighborhood I live in. How do you feel, uh, how do you feel about, uh, reading one of those? Oh, one of those. Um. I don't know. You piqued my curiosity now. Oh. Well, perhaps the shorter would be better. <clears throat> um. Uh, afternoon according to St. Matthew. Gotta find what page that's on. Give me a minute. I will help you. 38 here. Oh, here we one. Alright, well thank you so much for reading that. Did you want to say anything more about your, uh, neighborhood? I sort of cut you off in my excitement no, to have I you read this. Um, well this poem has to do with, there are two, two girls, two sisters. Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but I just like to watch. And I have a window in a little kitchen area, and when I look out the window, I'm looking directly. These houses are very close together. I'm looking at a driveway where um, maybe three or four different generations live in a very, very tiny, tiny house, and I had tried to figure out who belongs to who. Right. And I, I can't do it. But um, needless <laughs> to say, there's some hard scrabble times, and gotcha. I have been a lot of fights. And I, I've watched these little girls play for years and years. And in fact, the little girl who's the little girl, the littlest girl in the poem I'm about to read is, um, oh, she's now like junior high or something. But wow. none of that, of course, matters because this is just my imagination. But The afternoon, according to St. Matthew, there's the black truck with orange flames on its hood. There's the girl in the pink pajamas. There's her sister in a bumblebee suit. They're playing with dirt. When they find bugs, they scream, but no one hears them. Their minds are growing, though. In the late afternoon light, they scoop the dirt into tin cans so they can bury it in the backyard. I think we have a case of two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left, but it's way too early to tell. Oh, thank you so much for reading that. That is so remarkable. That is so remarkable. And I can't, have you ever interacted with them in any sort of mundane way? No, I've never, never even spoken to them. I've just watched them, but I really did one day see them. I mean, you know, Burying dirt. Yeah. Is there, is this, yeah you seem to have a, there are a lot of things. I bury things as a child, but <laughs> you bury things. Like you bury dirt. You move dirt from one place to yeah. another. 
I know. Isn't that incredible? Maybe that's not what they were doing, but that's what my imagination, I mean, that's what it looked like they were doing, and I have to die believing that's what they were doing. Yeah. I don't know if this is kind of a romantic notion, but you seem to have a felicity towards, like, an authenticity that the way you remembered the horse, the paper mache horse's name and and little moments of accuracy that are important to you. Can you speak to that for a second? My memory is primarily visual. Yeah. And, I, and then you just kind of like reproduce that, right? <laughs> I remember in images. Yeah. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who who claims uh, that they absolutely think in images, that language rarely enters any sort of interior monologue. I don't I'm not I don't know how to think about that. Oh but they're not a writer, are they? They couldn't be. No, they're not they're not a writer. Yeah. No, I I very much I think in language Me too. my interior monologue is is in language. It, it's not in complete sentences obviously. Right. Um and then there are images that flash on on and off, come in and out. Woven together are images and and words, images and words. But but primarily, I think of myself as thinking in words, but memory is always the image first. That is so true. And I think you described (laughs) the interior actions of the mind, like, really perfectly. Um, I think we're going to go out with one more poem, Mary, um, Elegy for a Game. All right. Elegy for a game. Once I was on earth, and I liked it. I got to look at my toes underwater. They look bigger than they were in real life. As anyone can tell by looking at it, sugar is meaningless. You are not supposed to stay in the hot tub longer than ten minutes. After that, it is meaningless. Like white poinsettias. I mean at Christmas. Maybe Christmas is meaningless too, but we used to pretend it was not, and I liked that. It's pointless. I don't actually know what a football looks like. I think they have something to do with babies. The man is carrying a baby across the field. He is trying to save it. It's hard. Sometimes people die trying to do things. That's okay. There are things more important than life or death. I miss holding my breath. Mary Rufel, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Poetry. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.